You're listening to Cabrini Conversations, a podcast series that brings faculty together for cavalier conversations on research, current events, and pop culture. So hi, Abel. It's great to welcome you to the Communication Center. Uh, when you were a student here at Cabrini, uh, you, that was one of the majors you didn't have. Um, <laughs> but we're now recording the fourth episode of Conversations. And I'm Jerry Zurich. I teach here at Cabrini for a couple decades at least. And uh, glad to welcome you over here. Thank you so much. And I'm Abel Rodriguez. I'm a professor here at Cabrini University, and I'm the director of the Center on Immigration here. And we both just got back from Guatemala a couple of weeks ago. Um, I've been going to Guatemala with my colleague Raquel Green for about 10 years. And this was Abel's first trip as a Cabrini faculty member. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had been there before on your own, though, right? I had traveled a bit through Guatemala, yes. Yeah. And, and what were some of your observations um, you know, that you saw this time that are different, especially in the context of immigration and uh, you know, s- some of the reasons why people would leave uh, Central America and come to the United States? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I had traveled there before, I traveled essentially as a tourist, just traveling around and experiencing the country. Um, and this time, obviously, it's done in a much more intentional way. Um, as part of the trip, we were both doing some uh, some service work, but more uh, focused on immersion and talking to people there and hearing their stories um, and their experiences um, and hearing about the mission, the San Lucas mission there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I observed firsthand some of what I've observed traveling throughout Latin America and uh, that I discuss in my classes, which is, uh, you know, some of the root causes and some of the things that caused people to... Uh, some of the push factors that caused people to migrate. Um, And we saw some of that. And so you can still see uh, being there, and we talked a bit about this, some of the adverse effects of going uh, back throughout history, you know, colonization in the region, and then uh, U.S. influence and U.S. intervention in the region, and how how that's, uh, you know, led to some destabilization there, has led to some pretty deep inequality, um, which has uh, led people to, to, uh, you know, to migrate. Mm-hmm. Um, to other parts of the world. And so um, I had the chance in some one-on-one conversations with people to talk to them about that and talk about uh, some of the regions. My understanding is in San Lucas, there's in a large proportion of people that are migrating, but there are some people that are that are leaving and are migrating, but that there are uh, other places, obviously, in Guatemala where people are in large numbers, um, you know, leaving their communities. And then, you know, what, what's the impact or the effects of that on their on their home communities? Yeah, I, I think in teaching about immigration here at Cabrini, um, students are so surprised to learn the the history of interference by the United States in so many of these Central American countries that has really destabilized these countries going back, you know, 50, 75 years, you know, e- even prescinding from the colonization. But just what we did with, uh, you know, overthrow of regimes in Central America from what I've experienced, people have consistently been pretty conscious of U.S. involvement in their countries uh, that's lacking here. And so in talking to people, uh, I feel that generally they, they have a pretty good sense of how the U.S. is impacting and adversely impacting their countries um, politically, how it has in the past, and how it's continuing to do that. Uh, whereas I find that uh, here that's not the case. And so when we discuss that, because I don't think you can talk about root causes of migration without talking about colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism. Uh, and when we uh, talk about that and we talk about the U.S.'s role in Latin America, that's new for almost all of my students. They don't have a consciousness of that. 
whereas people outside of this country, I feel for the most part, really do. Yeah. I mean, my students, you know, keep saying, why didn't we learn this in high school? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's yeah, pretty consistent. Um, and I ask them, why didn't you? Right. Why do you think? Right. Uh, and we have conversations about that. Why isn't this discussed um, in the curriculum? Why isn't it in the textbooks? And then I always, uh, I don't have them actually read the book because unfortunately we just can't. Uh, we already have a lot that we, that we have to cover. But I talk about uh, James Lowen's Lies My Teacher Told Me and talk about how history textbooks are written. And, uh, you know, that essentially his thesis is that uh, he looks at the 12 most popular history textbooks in the United States and says, basically, these are written in such a way that renders people passive because you believe that the, 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 that the country is always uh, working towards progress. So we don't need to be active because the country will just do that. It's on, right? It's automatically going to happen. Um, and if something, you know, if there is an injustice, there will be some charismatic leader, somebody who's incredibly eloquent who will rise up and uh, ensure that, uh, you know, that the injustice is stopped like Martin Luther King, right? Um, ignoring the, you know, millions of people who were, who were involved in the civil, civil rights struggle, right? Um, and so that those narratives in those textbooks render people passive to not be civically engaged and not make their voices heard and fight against injustice. Um, yeah. And Jerry, I wanted to ask you, uh, I know you've been doing this for 10 years now. This was your 10th trip, 10th anniversary yep. to Guatemala. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you, uh, what prompted you? What was the motivation to begin going to Guatemala? And what's uh, you know, kept you going back for the past 10 years? I, I think I've been deeply affected by the Cabrini sisters' um, commitment to uh, people who are suffering around the world, you know, especially migrants, you know, the, the mission of Mother Cabrini. Uh, I think the more I've, the more years I've taught here, I really see that um, the impact that Mother Cabrini had on so many people over the last hundred years um, made me want to go and understand um, her vocation more deeply than I had understood before. And so this was one little way that I made my own journey. Um, you know, first starting, you know, maybe 15 years ago in Brazil and then visiting El Salvador and visiting the border and um, just to try to understand what it means to live such a precarious life where families don't know where their next meals will come from, uh, families that try so hard um, to have, a, you know, a, provide a great home for their children, but how, you know, the, the poverty that they are living makes it so difficult to give their children what they want to give their children. And so the more I see that, the more I want to come back and I want to understand it more deeply and then come back and introduce our own students to what the reality of so many people's lives are. And what have you seen in terms of the impact on students going uh, and participating in this trip to Guatemala over the years? There, there's no doubt that it has a deep impact and what we try to do is then give the students uh, the opportunity to act on what they have seen. Uh, I mean, many thousands of Amer North Americans go uh, to poorer countries every, every spring break, every summer, and they all come back, you know, wanting to do something, but then don't know what to do. And I think that's what both you and I, you know, who, uh, you know, have become involved in training students to advocate and to lobby have given our students the opportunity to act on their goodwill and to find a way that they can impact, make long-term, uh, a long-term impact um, around these issues that they're, they've become so knowledgeable and passionate about. 
you've just begun in the last couple of years to bring students to DC. Do you feel that they that that has given them a, a new outlet for their passion? You know, I've heard from students that they uh, that they find learning about the issues in the classroom uh, very impactful. But then it's being able to uh, to go to DC or go to Harrisburg and make their voices heard that they feel like that they're that they're having an impact and that they can. Uh, then, you know, gain those skills to continue doing that, uh, you know, beyond, uh, you know, my class and beyond uh, college itself, their college experience. Um, and so uh, that's, you know, what, what I've heard from them is that they feel that it really uh, kind of, uh, they, they feel empowered by that and they mm-hmm. feel that they can then, um, you know, they really feel that they can, they can make their voices heard on political issues and things that they, they feel are injustices uh, at this time. And, uh yeah, and so I'm grateful to you for uh, blazing that trail um, and being able to follow your lead in terms of getting students involved in lobbying and how to do that and how to do that intentionally and responsibly and uh, uh, and do it well. Yeah. When you teach numerous courses on immigration here, do you find that students have a lot of misconceptions about why people have come to our country? You know, many of them undocumented. Absolutely, and I've adapted my course um, to. Uh, uh, to what what I've come to expect now, which is, you know, students and uh, and it's understandable. I mean, they come with uh, the information that they receive from media, uh, and uh, and sometimes from family, um, and uh, yeah, and there isn't a lot of uh, in depth conversation about. I mean, even within within media, even when uh, immigration is highlighted and when it's focused within the media. Uh, we get a very surface level uh, kind of representation of what uh, what causes people to migrate, what the true root causes are of migration, uh, what that uh, you know what migration means for a lot of people, what that journey is actually like, and then what uh, people's experience uh, is in this country. And, uh, and yeah, and so now I've adapted my course that the the first uh, couple of weeks of the course itself is really um, a little bit of a kind of defense. <laughs> um, and in, uh, you know, first addressing those myths, those misconceptions around issues of migration uh, so that then we can uh, we can have real conversations about the issues um, without those uh, those myths and misconceptions kind of getting in the way of the conversation. Yeah. What, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that people come into your classes with? Yeah. yeah and so I've developed those uh, that those lessons, those lectures, and those discussions, uh, I've adapted them to uh, the misconceptions that are brought into the classroom. So I've done it somewhat organically. And so a lot of what we hear uh, uh, gets repeated in terms of, you know, people taking jobs, uh, being a drain on the economy, um, uh, you know, migration being a drain on the economy, um, in terms of, you know, crime rates uh, and crime rates being uh, uh and crime rates uh, rising uh, because of migration. And, of course, none of that's true. And so if you look at actual data and actual research, uh, we know that, that those are just absolute misconceptions, yet they're perpetuated and they, you know, they're repeated uh, over and over and over again. And so we, we not only talk about that today and how the, that, that just simply doesn't reflect reality today, uh, but also how that rhetoric has been used and how those misconceptions have uh, been perpetuated with each wave of immigrants that have come to, to this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always wonder, um, is knowledge enough to convert people's way of thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people are open to new knowledge, but sometimes just prejudice you know, has such a grip on them. Mm-hmm. And I think the way you're talking about 
examining their own family's history and how if they're Italian, you know, Italians were discriminated against, if they're Polish, et cetera, and kind of understanding their own family history of immigration and how uh, this is just a cycle that keeps repeating itself with the latest wave of immigrants. And I'm curious, how, how do you address, because I know you also do advocacy on, on immigration issues, and so how do you address that with students to uh, you know, get them thinking about the issues beyond, uh, you know, the kind of surface level, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stereotypes, myths, misconceptions? You know, I think part of what we try to do at Cabrini is not just um, impart knowledge, but also have um, try to affect our students' hearts. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do. I think the more personal experience and personal contact they can have uh, with you know immigration with immigrants or with really any issue that they're studying in class, um, that it's that personal contact that really you know is what transforms people. And you know I know you try to bring speakers in, you try to get your students out of the classroom as well. And I, I kind of think that that's really what we have to do as educators. Um, you know, merely, you know, showing the crime statistics are lower among immigrant populations may have some intellectual effect, but I don't know if it really changes people's ways of thinking. And I think that, that we're, we're at a point in our nation where there's so much um, bombarding of the audiences with misinformation and propaganda and anti-immigrant rhetoric that it's very hard to convince people just with knowledge, just with you know, facts and figures. Because on a daily basis, you come in contact with so many young people who are undocumented and you're trying to help them. I mean, I can't imagine what their lives are like. You know, they've been successful. You know, they've gone to college. You know, many of them are in graduate school. And now they're in this, uh, this, uh, you know, I don't even know what how to describe it, you know, this never-never land of not knowing what their future is going to hold. I mean, can you tell me, like, what? how are these young people handling um, not knowing what their future is going to be? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? So I want to be careful. I obviously don't want to speak for uh, for undocumented folks, for, for DACA students. Um, I mean, from my own perspective, speaking for myself, what I can say is I've been incredibly impressed with the courage mm-hmm. um, and the fortitude that they've approached this with. Uh, and, um, you know, just in the face of the unknown with things being so uh, so unstable, for instance, in terms of DACA politically, obviously it being rescinded and then courts citing there should be an injunction and that that, uh, that uh, renewals should be accepted now and then not knowing, you know, what will happen when that's appealed um, and just the, uh, you know, the, the the DACA recipients, the dreamers that I've encountered, just being uh, just incredibly impressed with their with their courage, um, and with the you know the dreamers who are continuing to advocate and who are continuing to uh, even engage in civil disobedience mm-hmm. uh, to continue to fight for this. I mean, it's just incredibly brave. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and I mean, and then and then it's also disheartening to to see the finger pointing that's happening um, politically. Really, neither side of the aisle has been very good to our immigrant communities, um, and so we often forget that uh, you know that, that this isn't new. Uh, that you know, under the Obama administration, there were mass deportations and family detention centers grew under the Obama administration, um, and then obviously now we see the uh, the vitriol and just the uh, 
the hateful rhetoric that we're seeing uh, aimed at our immigrant communities um, and just each side of the aisle kind of pointing at the other and blaming the other side for what's happening and at, what's at stake in the meantime uh, are real people's lives, right? Millions of people's lives, people who have been forced into migration or forced incredibly dif- faced incredibly dif- difficult circumstances uh, that have forced them to leave their home. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, they're being used as political capital and political collateral. Um, it's incredibly disheartening. I don't know. Are you hopeful seeing where we are right now, knowing that nothing has happened in terms of uh, there hasn't been any movement uh, on um, <clears throat> on it on the Dream Act or something similar to the Dream Act? Uh, how are you feeling about things? Are you feeling hopeful that something will will come to pass? Or no, that that'd be the last thing I would feel right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, at one point when you know Trump issued that demand that Congress solve the problem, you know by you know, March, you know, I said, okay, well, here's a deadline. Here's a real hard, hard date that they have to meet. And then, you know, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And so now it, it we're just, in, we're just in this, um, I, I have no idea what, who's going to make the next move. I mean, I mean, some Congress people from both sides, Republicans and Democrats are meeting together and are trying to work something out. So that little bit is hopeful. But it seems that there's just so many, um, you know, nativists in Congress who are just going to keep stalling the process um, that I don't see how we're going to get through this impasse that we're at right now. I mean, I'd be willing at this point to, you know, trade $20 billion for a wall in order to get beyond this impasse. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, even that is, didn't happen in the budget negotiations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you feel? Yeah, I was asked the other day, somebody said, what do you think about that in terms of the compromises that might need to be made? And, you know, uh, for instance, the wall uh, or increased ICE presence, uh, would you personally uh, be satisfied with that type of compromise in order for the DREAM Act or something like that? Uh, my response was, I think we should ask DREAMers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should ask them, uh, you know, are they uh, satisfied with that compromise? And I think, well, again, I don't want to speak for for them, but I know at least just from listening to some dreamers, they've said, don't do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, don't, uh, for my benefit, you know, compromise in this way and, you know, allow this negative impact on other people who may be in migration or will migrate. Um, so like I said, I don't want to speak for them, but that's, I haven't seen enough uh, of people elevating dreamers' voices and whether they think it's a good compromise or not. So I see lots of pundits, I see the experts, you know, talking about it and whether they feel it's, you know, an acceptable compromise or not. But, uh, but I think more needs to be done to really lift up their voices and ask them, right, is this a good, is this a good path forward or not? Do they want this? Because, um, you know, they're the ones directly affected, directly impacted. Do you feel in some ways that focusing on the dreamers is splitting the immigrant community, almost playing the dreamers off against their parents and, you know, other family members? Because it's a larger issue that our country has to has to figure out. Yeah, I've seen even well-intentioned people or people who consider themselves uh, advocates for the immigrant community fall into that trap of that binary, the good immigrant, bad immigrant binary. You always see that there has to be, you know, in the kind of dominant narrative, there has to be blame placed somewhere when we're talking about immigrants, which of course isn't necessary. We don't need to think of things in those terms, right? And that kind of false dichotomy of the good immigrants and the bad immigrants. And so I've actually heard Maria Sotomayor of PIC speak very beautifully about this. Um, and she said, please stop blaming DACA recipients' parents. Um, like I said, even well-intentioned people doing that and saying, you know, in order to 
kind of make DACA recipients more sympathetic, saying it's not their fault. It was the parents who brought them here. Um, and it falls into that, you know, uh, good immigrant, bad immigrant. So the, here it's the parents, right? They're, they're the ones that made the mistake and came here. Um, and she, I've heard her speak beautifully about this and say, uh, you know, stop blaming the parents. They had their reasons for coming here too. And uh, they're, you know, they're the parents of DACA recipients. DACA recipients love them, <laughs> right? Um, stop, uh, you know, stop blaming them uh, for, for migration. Let's look at what are the actual causes of migration, right? What's actually forcing people to flee their homes? You know, I wonder how, uh, you know, a few years ago, we had great hopes for comprehensive immigration reform. And then, you know, that failed uh, in Congress. And it seems to have gone downhill so badly. Um, I'm wondering at what point American voters are going to say, you know, we do have issues here and we need to have some sort of a positive approach to have comprehensive immigration reform. You know, how, how far away are we from the country realizing that, you know, we have a broken immigration system, we don't have enough visas. Um, immigrants are are helpful to our our country and to our economy. When when is the dominant voice going to switch? Um, I, I'm I'm old, and I realize that my social security is dependent on more young people paying into the system. So I want you know pe young people uh, to be paying taxes to support me in in my retirement. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, if I have to stop teaching and I have to be cared for by a home health care worker, I want there to be home health care workers. So it's very beneficial to me. When are people going to see the, the handwriting on the wall that we need young people? We need, you know, people from outside of we're, we're not making enough babies mm -hmm. right now <laughs> to take care of me. Mm -hmm. Well, and Paul <laughs> okay. Ryan said that recently in yeah. December of 2017, said that exactly at the mm -hmm. same time that they're uh, restrictionists on immigration. They're saying we need more people. And he was basically encouraging people to have more babies. He was saying this. He said, I've done my part because I think he has three children or something. Uh, and he's saying we need more people in this country. And it's like, where, you know, the disconnect there. It's like, how do you not get that, right? That w there are immigrants who, who, want to, who want to migrate, right? Um, but obviously those aren't the people that they, that they want, right? In terms yeah, of, and, and have, he was saying the economy will suffer if we yeah. do not have more people going forward. Yeah. And, and, and we have labor needs, um, you know, both at all areas in the labor spectrum from, you know, manual laborers to, you know, people who are making inventions. And so a country needs to revitalize itself. When are we going to realize we need to fix the immigration system? We need to have more visas. We need to have border. We, we need to allow people to go back and forth to their homes. I mean, basically now we've, we want to build a wall to keep people inside and to keep people outside. But what if we conceived of, you know, the, the needs of labor might have might be seasonal, you know, and we might have visas that would allow more people to come for seasonal jobs and then return home. Um, what's it going to take to get people to realize these things? Well, it's incredibly frustrating for me is I think to some extent people have realized it. Mm -hmm. You know, the majority of people in this country do favor some kind of immigration reform. They usually qualify it in some way and they say, well, if folks are working or if they pay some kind of fine or some kind of back tax, there's usually a qualifier. But if there's some qualifier involved, that's the overwhelming majority of the country is in favor of some kind of reform. So what's incredibly frustrating is that there is the will in turn, among the people to do this. But politically, it's, it's just, uh, you know, not moving forward and not progressing. And that's incredibly frustrating uh, because most people 
would be in favor of some kind of reform and allowing some kind of path forward for people, at least for people who are already in the United States, who are already here. Um, and you're right in terms of the visa system. I mean, uh, you know, when you talk with people, they say, well, but, you know, uh, how would that impact the country if the, if the visa system were changed and more visas were given? Um, and a lot of times people don't realize we have an incredible visa backlog right now that for some people it's 20 plus years that they're waiting in order for a visa to be available. These are folks who have qualifying relatives in the United States who are either permanent residents or U.S. citizens. Uh, and, uh, you know, some have to wait over, you know, uh, like close to a quarter of a century in order to be reunited with their families. Um, and what people don't realize is uh, that backlog is devastating to some families and is incredibly long. But the people that are in that backlog, it's about 3.9 million people. It's about 1% of the population of the United States. And so we, it's absolutely feasible that we could either speed that up or essentially uh, allow everyone to come to the front of the line, right? People love to talk about the line. <laughs> um, those 20-plus year lines um, could be shortened dramatically. Uh, and, uh, you know, it would be a matter of, uh, uh, of a few million people who would be impacted in a pretty profound way positively. Uh, if the visa system were revamped and uh, would not have this, you know, detrimental impact that people think on the country in terms of numbers and people entering, you know, at one time. Is it be? I, I understand that the majority of the population would like comprehensive immigration reform, but that is it that it's not a salient, a strong enough issue in people's lives that that rises to a level where uh, people are putting pressure on politicians. Is is that the problem? That yes, but it's maybe number ten of the of the issues that I'm really worried about, mm -hmm. and it's not a strong enough issue compared to you know minimum wage or you know whatever mm -hmm. you know, the dominant issues might be. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's where we that's where our job maybe as educators is to help um, young people connect the issue to things that are very important in their own lives, mm -hmm. like their own economic future and how immigration would be beneficial to them. And, you know, I think that's why it's great to be teaching at Cabrini that this is such an important issue here that I hope that most of our students, when they graduate, understand the importance of, um, you know, this is a strength of America and we need to keep building up the strength. So now that we're back from Guatemala, uh, we're getting our students ready to go down to Washington to meet with uh, our representatives. Um, they keep asking, you know, like, what is this visit going to be? And I say th that this is really your um, first visit to Congress and that to uh, bring about reform, it can't be your last. And, uh, you know, I just say is, is a once-a-week email out of the question for you. Could you continue to advocate on behalf of this issue or, you know, um, in, in some way, whether it's through social media, whether it's through letters, through writing to uh, your local media, or especially writing to your Congress people? Um, and, and I think if we could develop the habit of advocacy, that we will then have uh, made a, a huge step forward with with their education. How, how do you feel about that? Do you make any recommendations of what you would like your students to continue to do after they uh, finish your class or graduate? 
Absolutely. We talk about it that, you know, they uh, are taking an ECG course and that part of that is uh, research and advocacy. But the reason that that's built into our curriculum is because really we're hoping that that prepares them for life. And so that, uh, you know, my course, obviously the content, we focus on immigration issues, but that my hope is that they will continue to use the skills that they uh, gain in the class throughout the rest of their lives. And so in terms of yeah, just getting engaged in issues. I tell them, I hope you continue to engage in immigration issues, but also with other issues. For most of my students, it's the first time that they've uh, ever made a phone call to a legislator, that they've ever written a letter to a legislator. And uh, for almost all of them, it's the first time that they've gone to D.C. or to Harrisburg to do some advocacy. Um, and so I tell them, you know, uh, now you have those skills, you know, I hope that you continue this on throughout your life, not only on immigration issues, but on other issues as well. And, you know, make your voice heard and... Um, yeah, and I, I, I'm tremendously inspired by this portion of our mission statement that talks about uh, we want our students to become engaged citizens of the world. And I feel that um, that's what we're trying to do. This is not something that I think a lot of colleges focus their attention on. I think often, and I, I'm as guilty of this as, as anyone, um, in the past I would teach about the problems but never then how to become engaged and to become a, an agent of change. And I think that I'm very, very proud that Cabrini you know, has that as part of our mission statement, to become engaged citizens of the world, and that by teaching them advocacy and lobbying and political engagement, that's a very important component. And that's something that I think you know, we're both trying to do very much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 